Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, our Sunday morning Bible study. This is the first Sunday after Easter, and uh, if you are a follower of sort of the, the church calendar year, uh, the Easter season, Easter is not over on Easter Day. Like, it, it commences a whole season, and so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's neat to be able to to think this these whole few weeks after Easter about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and and um, and we're in that time between if you were following the earthly life of Jesus that that time in which Jesus was still appearing the risen Jesus was still appearing to his disciples in different times and places uh, and, and and sharing meals with them and and talking to them about the future and uh, he did that the scripture says for about 40 days until he ascended back to his father uh, and then 10 days after that we have uh, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost so anyway uh, that being said we're we're a week after Easter and so we're still in that if we were in the lifetime of Christ we would have been in that we would still be in that time period where the risen Christ was still appearing to his disciples it's 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 neat to think about the the our our time our and how we structure this year in those kinds of terms, I've heard it said, uh, we, we do that already to, a, to, a, to an extent. We celebrate Christmas and we celebrate Easter, and uh, but it seems like the way we structure the rest of our year is more guided by uh, civic and secular uh, calendar events than anything else. And so we have Independence Day on the 4th of July. Uh, we have Halloween. We have... Uh, Thanksgiving, which technically is is a good thing, but it's still uh, implemented by uh, the the civil calendar. But you know, there's a whole way that we can follow a church calendar that that helps us structure our year, uh, reminding ourselves of the life of Christ. It begins in Advent, where not only do we anticipate uh, remembering the first coming of Christ, but we remind ourselves that. That he is coming again, then we have Christmas Day where he is born, we have Epiphany uh, where he is uh, manifested to the Gentiles, often illustrated through the visit of the wise men, and, and you have uh, you have Lent, which is a, a 40, 40 days, I mean, that, that, that if you ever wonder what that's mirroring, it's mirroring the suffering of Christ. Uh, throughout his life. I, I don't necessarily advocate um, going to these drastic measures during Lent uh, to do anything especially harsh to yourself because it's Lent or anything like that, but I do believe there's nothing wrong with during that 40 days leading up to Easter intentionally uh, reminding yourselves even more of the suffering that Christ went through on our sake and, and his 40 days, for example, of, of temptation in the wilderness and, and just the sacrifices he made for us and for our salvation, leading up to, to Holy Week, which we just uh, celebrated with um, Good Friday and Easter, and now we're in the Easter season, Ascension, Pentecost, and ordinary time leading up to the, the, uh, the next Advent, again, where we remember the second coming. So anyway, it's almost structuring your whole year after the, the life events of Christ. I've heard it said, uh, keep time in a way that helps you keep company with Jesus. I don't think there's anything wrong with the civic holidays we we um, we celebrate, but it it is good also to 
to be more uh, kingdom-minded and, and, and structuring our time after the life of Christ. I encourage you to think about your, your, uh, your year in that way. So right now, we're still in Eastertide. So um, happy Resurrection Day all over again. But uh, we're, we're going to get back into our study in the book of Acts. We just have two chapters left, chapters 27 and 28. And uh, so I take, take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 27. And uh, just to pick up where we are uh, in this study, we've been away from it for a couple of weeks now for Palm Sunday and for Easter. Uh, but the, the most recent chapters up to this time, uh, leading up to chapter 27, have been uh, telling the story of, of Paul's ordeal uh, of enduring accusation after accusation and trial after trial just for being a Christian, just for bearing witness to Christ in public places and preaching the gospel. At the end of chapter 26, Paul, uh, he had already stood trial before a number of people. He, he had stood, stood trial before the Jews. He stood trial who were plotting to kill him. He stood trial before Felix. He stood trial before Festus and then Agrippa. I mean, he's trial after trial. At the uh, uh, when and toward the end of those trials, he appealed uh, to Caesar. He wanted to stand. Paul said, "I want to appeal and stand trial before Caesar himself." And uh, the Caesar to whom Paul appealed when he did that was not Julius Caesar. Uh, who lived much earlier than, than these days, the Caesar that Paul would have been referring to to stand trial before would have been the infamous Nero Caesar. Uh, and so in chapter 26, I said, uh, as I said, Paul had appealed to, uh, to, to, to Caesar, Nero Caesar, uh, to get away from the courts he had been in and then to be able to plead his case before Caesar himself. And so in chapter 27, uh, we're going to read it in just a minute, Paul begins his journey toward Rome in order to stand trial before Caesar. And uh, as when we read this chapter, you'll, uh, you'll see that uh, the, the trip was not without its difficulties, um, uh, to say the least. I mean, we're going to see that there was, the, the, the main event of this chapter is a, is a violent storm at sea that would eventually lead uh, to, the, to a shipwreck, right? The ship that Paul was sailing on was actually shipwrecked because of this storm. It's a really fascinating story and one that uh, I think if we, if we think about it very carefully, uh, it can help us understand um, a larger issue that we sometimes encounter in passages like this. If, if you have been in our college ministry for some time, uh, you know that uh, a year or so ago, we were studying through the book of Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews. And I brought, the issue I want to talk about today is one that I brought up then when we were studying through Hebrews. But I know some of you, maybe many of you, weren't, uh, weren't in our college ministry um, then, and so maybe you, you haven't uh, heard me say this. So uh, I'm going to take this opportunity to recover something I said then from Acts chapter 27. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an issue that, a theological issue that sometimes plagues the minds of some believers that I think uh, Acts chapter 27 can help shed some light on. So I'll tell you what that is in just a minute, but let's, 
let's read the chapter first, and then and then we'll get more specific. Beginning in verse 1 in Acts chapter 27, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports of, along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There, were, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus. And the wind did not allow us to go farther. We sailed under the lee of Crete off of Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss. This was a, <laughs> this was a doomed uh, trip from a physical standpoint. I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. At this point, Paul thought, we're going to die. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, he decided to put out to sea from there. On the chance that somehow they could reach uh, Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest to spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, and, and just think, try to put yourself in this situation, listen to the language, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, uh, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Again, the language. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. Imagine, you, you could... Even in the daytime, but the storm was so bad, you couldn't even see the sun in the middle of the day and the stars at night. I mean, it continued for many days. And no small tempest lay upon us. All hope of our being saved 
was at last abandoned. I mean, they were at the low point. They felt like they were going to die. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, and this is what they did not want to hear, Paul's, I told you so. He said, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. But he keeps going and he says, yet now, Paul says, I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. How could he say such a thing? He says, nobody's going to die. How could he say such a thing? He says in verse 23, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong, right? And whom I worship. And he said, the angel said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart. Men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night, two weeks, two weeks of this, when the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took sounding again and found 14 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down our four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion, soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, they cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes and the sh of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take, on some, to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food. They haven't eaten for two weeks. Therefore, having taken other, therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. He repeats the promise. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged um, and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. It makes you think. Luke was there. Luke is writing this, and he said, we, we were all. So Luke is there with Paul. And when, when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. It's amazing how, in that, how God gave Paul opportunity to bear witness to those pagan sailors, breaking bread and giving thanks to God before them all. And they were all, because of the tragedy, willing to hear it. Verse, 20, verse, verse 39 now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, 
the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, you see God's providence in all of this, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Let's pray and ask God's blessing over the study of his word. Father, thank you so much for these, this, your word that we've read. It's an amazing story. As, maze, as amazing as it is, we know it's true because it is your word. It's your inspired, inerrant, um, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. Clear. Not everything is as clear as every other thing, but everything that is necessary for us to believe and be saved is clearly set forth uh, in, in places in Scripture. Your message is clear to us. So help us, give us eyes to see the truth that's here, clearly set forth. Give us minds to understand it. Break down the, the resistance of our sinful hearts and give us hearts to embrace and love the truth. Be encouraged by it. Uh, this day. Give us wills to obey whatever it calls us to do. Give us all ears to hear and give me the help that I need to teach. I pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, so let's think about how we want to approach this chapter. The story of the storm, I mean, is, ex is extremely exciting. It's a, it's a, it's a page-turner itself. Uh, it's interesting. And, there, and I tried to make comments along the way to show that there are there are several lessons that you could come to this chapter and take away from it. You could the, the the most obvious lesson that you can take away from this chapter is the sovereignty of God over all things. We saw the sovereignty of God over the weather in this chapter. We saw the sovereignty of God um, over human hearts in the sense of even moving upon a centurion, a Roman centurion, to, to, to uh, save Paul's life so that the soldiers didn't kill all the prisoners, so that the sovereign uh, plan of God would come to pass, that, he, that Paul survived this shipwreck and make it to Rome to appeal before Caesar. Um, and the fact that, that, just as God promised, there was no loss of life in this whole ordeal shows the sovereignty of God over all things. That's, that's the lesson that leaps off the page, uh, as it has done in many of these chapters in the book of Acts. There's, uh, so there's all sorts of lessons, important lessons, that we could get from this chapter, like I just mentioned. But I want us to think a little more deeply, and if, again, if you've been in our college ministry uh, uh, for any length of time, you've heard me make this comparison. I hope it encourages you to be reminded of it even if you've already heard it. But I want us to think a little more deeply and consider another theological issue that this passage, I think, helps uh, give us counsel on. And some of the insights, I will say, uh, that I'm going to say about this, I have gleaned from a helpful book by uh, Tom, Dr. Thomas Schreiner at Southern Seminary and Ardell Candidate uh, on Assurance of Salvation. Many of the insights uh, I, I learned initially from uh, those two men, I, I give them credit for some of this, but the, the theological issue that I want to uh, make reference to 
uh, and compare here are the warning passages in Hebrews. Um, there, there are several such passages warning believers against falling away from the faith. And those, those, I, those passages in Hebrews have puzzled many Christians down through the ages. Uh, they, they're, they're puzzling because they appear to be giving um, believers and warning believers uh, against falling away and from the faith and losing their salvation in the process. So let me just give you a few examples of, of those in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 2.1 says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. There, uh, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And there's, there's a lot of passages like it. Uh, you find them again in Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10 and Hebrews chapter 12. You can go back to our podcast, our Lakeview College Ministry podcast, and find all of those, uh, those passages addressed uh, from last year. But uh, what makes those warning passages, and there are other passages like it outside the book of Hebrews, what makes those, those kinds of passages so puzzling to believers, many believers, is because of what they read in other passages. Um, namely, passages that seem to indicate very clearly that believers cannot lose their salvation. Uh, and they cannot drift uh, away or fall away finally and completely from the faith and lose their salvation. Let me just give you a few examples of those. And you may know them by heart, and that's good if you do. The passages like Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, which is what? At the second coming. So that, that passage says the reason that we can be confident that we will never fall away from the faith is because we weren't the ones who began the faith in ourselves in the first place. God began that work in us, he who began a good work in you, and, and therefore he did not do it to no purpose. He did it pur purposefully to save us fully and finally, even until the day of Christ Jesus, so we can be confident. Or consider the promise uh, embedded in the, the benediction of that tiny little book at the end of the New Testament called Jude. In verse 24, now to him, that is God, him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He's able to keep us from stumbling. For how long? Until we are presented blameless before his presence, right? That's to the very end. Or think about, remember the promises that we read in John's gospel. John's gospel is there's so many of them, but especially in John chapter 6. I'm just going to read you uh, bits and pieces of um, that chapter, mainly verse, thir verse 37, verses 39 and 40, and verse 44. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. 
For everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I mean, how many times does Jesus promise of everyone who comes to him in repentance and faith, not only that they, they are forgiven and, and receive eternal life, he will raise them up on the last day. So uh, you also have promises like that that gives such strong assurance, they don't seem to jive with these warning passages against falling away. But it's not only that. You also have other passages that seem to, to teach pretty clearly that of those who do seem to make some sort of profession of faith but then later fall away, the Scripture seems to teach those people who fall away never were truly converted and born again in the first place. It's not like they were and lost it. They never were. So, for example, 1 John Chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says, and this is a bit of a tongue twister, but what he is saying is not hard to understand. They, they went out from us. So in other words, he's saying there were some people among our congregation who abandoned us, who left. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. To be of us is to be born again, fruit of that, continuing with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So those who do fall away never were really saved. They never were of us, so John says. Probably the best example uh, of all examples of the believer's eternal security in Christ is the golden chain of salvation near the end of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. That goes from the, the, not just the beginning of a believer's life, but eternity past in the sovereign counsel of God unto eternity future when we are glorified with Christ for all eternity. So it says, for those whom he foreknew, that's an eternity past. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined in eternity past, he called in time and space. And those whom he called, he also justified. That's the moment we trusted Christ and believed. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's when we will see Jesus face to face. That, like I said, that passage goes from eternity past to eternity future. Just as surely as we were predestined in eternity past by the sovereign counsel of God, just as surely will we be glorified in eternity future with Christ. God promised it. God guarantees it. He started it. He finishes it. It's by his grace. It's not by our works. We don't earn it. We can't lose it. Okay, the Bible seems to be so clear on those passages over and over again. That's the clear testimony of the Bible. So I say all that to say, do you see the apparent rub? Do you see now why uh, those warning passages are so puzzling to so, so many? The scriptures seem adamantly and unambiguously clear um, that, that those that God saves never lose their salvation 
On the other hand, there are those passages in Hebrews and other, other places as well with unmistakable warnings against falling away. So how should we, how should we understand those warnings? And, uh, and I have to say, if, if you never heard me address this issue, what in the world does that have to do with Acts chapter 27? What does that have to do with a shipwreck um, uh, as Paul's on his way to Rome? Well, I do believe that some of the details of this story, of Paul's struggle to get to Rome on this ship and the shipwreck that ensued, some of the details of the story of this during the storm give us a clue uh, to understand the intersection between promises of salvation to the very end and warnings against falling away. So let's think about how we can bring these two issues to a conclusion. If we turn our attention to the story in Acts chapter 27, let's, let's see how it might help us to untie this theological, at least perceived theological knot that we've so far described. To do that, let's, let's consider uh, some of the things that, that Paul and the other sailors endured during the, the, the uh, storm at sea. Beginning in verse 13, if you've got your Bible open, I invite you to, to, to look at that with me. Beginning in verse 13, uh, Luke, writing this, describes the increasing intensity of the storm. And by verse 18... Uh, we are told that they were being violently storm-tossed. Uh, and, and I suppose Paul could sense some anxiety among the sailors, which is very obvious if, if they're uh, beginning to jettison the cargo, as, as that verse says, and, and they're being violently storm-tossed. Uh, Paul could sense the anxiety. Uh, and even it even says in verse 20, up to this point in the storm, Paul might have... Uh, drawn a conclusion that ended up being the wrong conclusion. He says, and Luke says in verse 20, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now that could just mean that the sailors who were throwing the cargo overboard, they abandoned all hope of being saved. But to this point in the story, we have no compelling reason why to believe uh, that that Luke <laughs> or Paul weren't beginning to rethink some things. I will say as early as uh, chapter, oh gosh, as early as chapter 9 in the very conversion of, of Saul, God promised that he would stand before kings. And in, and, and in uh, later chapters, 18 and 19, etc., he had already promised Paul that he would stand before Caesar himself. So Paul did have this promise, even before all this, that he would eventually make it to Rome and, and, uh, and appeal to Caesar. And so based on that, uh, he says, Paul stands up and he says in verse 22, um, he says, Yet now I urge you, talking to all the sailors, to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Okay, let's just stop right there. What does that sound like? It sounds like a promise. Does it not? Sounds like a promise. There will be. No loss of life among you, but only of the ship. That's a promise. That's a guarantee, right? It's very important in the, in the unfolding of this story. In other words, the promise is nobody is going to die. He can't, he can't, he can't promise that the ship is going to make it. The ship might get all torn up, 
But if you'll listen to me, nobody's going to die. That's a promise. Nobody's going to die. Right? That's the guarantee. How did he know that? Well, um, Paul could have been confident in himself because God had promised him he would make it to Rome to appeal to Caesar. But now he, you have Paul telling all the guys on the ship, nobody's going to die. How can he know that? Well, it tells us, if you'll remember, in verses 23 and 24 that an angel of the Lord appeared to Paul in a dream and, and, and told him that, that they're all going to make it safely to Rome. So he tells them again in verse 25, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. In other words, exactly as I have been promised, it will happen exactly as I have promised you. Nobody will die. You might be scared, you might be... Uh, you, it might be a hard to believe, but trust me, I promise nobody's going to die. But as soon as that happens, something else interesting happens. Several days later, again, this, this storm went on for like two weeks. Several days later, the storm was still raging all around them. And in verse 30, look at verse 30, it tells us um, that the sailors, in verse 30, they... they uh, they were seeking to escape from the ship. Okay, Paul had already promised them uh, in, in, uh, in earlier in verse 20, uh, excuse me, verse 22. He promised them in verse 22. He reminded them of, of the promise again in verse 25. Nobody's going to die. They apparently didn't believe him. So in verse 30, they start to jump overboard. And, uh, and then they were going to try to make use of the lifeboat that was with the sea and with the ship. But when Paul found out that they were about to jump overboard for the lifeboat, what does he do in this story? If you, if you were listening carefully, what he does in verse 31, when he sees them about to go overboard, he gives them a warning. He gives them a warning. He says, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the boat, you cannot be saved. <laughs> what? Wait a minute. In other words, he's saying the warning is if you jump, you'll die. That, I thought Paul had already made a promise in verses 22 and 25. Nobody's going to die. But now he's given them a warning that says if you jump, you will die. Right? How does that work? I'll tell you. In, the, in this story, after Paul gave that warning, if you jump, you'll die. After he gave that warning, verse 32 says that the soldiers heard the warning, and so they cut away the ropes of the ship's boat, and they let it go. In other words, when they heard his warning, they stayed in the boat. And in other words, the warning that Paul gave aided the promise that he had already given. It caused them to stay in the boat. The warning kept them in the boat, which kept them alive just as God had promised. In other words, the promise and the warning work together, right? Nobody's going to die. That's the promise. If you jump, you'll die. So stay in the boat, which they do, which the promise comes to pass. And I believe that this is exactly the way in which the warnings in Hebrews and the warnings in other places in Scripture work on, a, on, 
broadly speaking, on a larger level, God has already made abundant promises to us um, uh, that if we've truly been saved and we've truly been born again and truly trusted Christ, we will never lose that salvation. Just like Paul's promise, nobody's going to die. But many times we are in life, in, in daily life, with hardships that come our way, with anxieties that come our way, different things that weigh us down, we are tempted to veer off the path of, of, of the straight and narrow. And God uses the warnings in the scriptures to, to, um, to, to keep us on that path, and that keeps God's promise coming true in our lives. The promises are not, should not be distressing to true believers. If a, tr if a genuinely born-again person has the Spirit of God in them, if you read those warnings like, you know, hold fast to the truth lest you drift away and fall away from God, if you read that and it kind of sends a shiver down your spine and you don't even want to think about that, you, you, it, it terrifies you at the thought of falling away, that is a good sign. That is the sign that the warning is having its intended effect in you. That's a, that's a sign that the Spirit of God is causing you to listen to that warning. Someone without the Spirit of God in their heart, who maybe even if they profess to be a believer, but, but shows no evidence of being a believer, doesn't have the witness of the Spirit in them, they will read that warning and they will not care. It will not faze them one little bit. The fact that you care about the warning and you listen to the warning shows that the Spirit of God is at work in you, right? The warnings help the promise come true. They work together, right? The, the warnings keep us coming back to Jesus in repentance and faith. Not to get saved over and over again, but to stay in the boat of His salvation. And that is how it, it happens that we make it to the end when Jesus returns on the last day. The warnings, again, don't contradict the promise. The warnings help fulfill the promise. It, it, it is very true that if those sailors jumped, they would die. But it's also, And it's also very true that if we turn our backs on Jesus and walk the other way, we won't be saved. But in both cases, the warnings kick in to help the promise come true. Paul warned them. That, uh, and, and because he warned them, they stayed in the boat and they lived just as God had promised. Hebrews and other passages warn us, which keep us trusting in Christ and holding fast unto him. And because of that, we are saved in the end, just as God had promised. And that is the story of uh, how a story of a shipwreck can help us understand that much deeper and thorny theological conundrum. I hope it has been encouraging to you on this Lord's Day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, and I pray that you would help us as we just think about how to apply this passage to our lives and how to bring comfort to our hearts. Uh, you would give us grace to do that, and thank you for the warnings in Scripture. Thank you for the promises in Scripture. Thank you for how it is all, as we prayed at the beginning, your inspired and inerrant word and that it is trustworthy, and it is, it is good for our souls, be it a promise or a warning. You never contradict yourself. Help us always to trust that and keep our eyes fixed on Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.